Welcome to Aim Higher, a show designed to help us realize the leadership potential inside of all of us. I'm Skip Pritchard, CEO, author, blogger, student of success, and your host. Today, we are talking about courage and culture, or Courageous Cultures, and the authors of the book, Courageous Cultures, are here with us today. Karen Hurt, first of all, she's the founder of Let's Grow Leaders, which is an international training firm helping leaders achieve breakthrough results. I love how they add this, though, without losing their soul. And Karen, I think, worked for Verizon for something around 20 years in HR, organizational development, then she was leading sales, she was in customer service, strategic partnerships. And Karen is always recruiting people, whether it's into an organization during those years or to a new idea, a new leadership idea. And she seemingly has taken recruiting to a new level because she recruited her now husband into Let's Grow Leaders, from what I understand. And so he's now the president, David Dye, and David's with us as well. He's been a nonprofit leader. He's coached leaders. I hear he's also been an elected official. We won't hold that against him. And they have a variety of clients in a number of different industries. They've traveled all over the place. And so welcome, Karen and David. It's great to have you. Oh, Skip, thank you so much for having us. Pleasure to be with you. So I should ask, is that right, though? Karen, did you recruit your <laughs> husband to <laughs> Let's Grow guess, Leaders? That's sorry. the way it looked like from the outside. <laughs> I think that pretty much sums it up. That's not <laughs> an unfair summary. Okay. So you were both doing work with a variety of clients, various industries, and you noticed a disconnect between management and workers that you kept seeing over and over. I'd love for you to start there and tell us a little bit more about what you were seeing. Yeah, Skip, it was fascinating. As we were doing our leadership development programs or consulting at the very senior levels of organizations, we would hear a consistent frustration. Executives would say, you know, why am I the one who has to discover these best practices? Why aren't people bringing me these good ideas? If something is broken, why aren't people lifting it up? And then we would be doing leadership training at the front line, supervisor level. We would hear things like, nobody wants my ideas. The last time I spoke up, I got in trouble. Nothing's going to ever happen anyway. So why bother? And we thought, are you working for the same company? So, you know, most leaders really do want to hear ideas and employees have so many good ones. Why was this happening? So we partnered with the University of North Colorado in an extensive research study that was both quantitative and qualitative to answer a couple of questions. One is, when people were holding back ideas, what kinds of ideas were they holding back? And we found that they weren't trivial. They were ideas to improve the customer experience, the employee experience, or to improve productivity in a process. And then what was preventing people from asking those ideas? Well, you know, that research is so interesting, and I would tell you that no company I've ever led would see that disconnect, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's uh, it's interesting how often management will bring in high-powered, high-priced consultants to interview people to tell them the same thing that they could have heard if they just listened. Yes. But that's not the case. And and people are either holding back the information or the questions are not asking. I noted in the research that you did with the University of Northern Colorado Social Research Lab that 49 percent, almost half of employees are not even regularly asked for ideas. 
So I'm curious, why is that? I mean, why aren't they even asked? You know, there are several different reasons that go into that. One of the things that we found, there is a fear among leaders at times that if I were to ask, I'm going to get this, you know, hodgepodge of ideas. There's too many. I can't use them. They're not going to be relevant. I'm going to be overwhelmed. And then people are going to be discouraged or dispirited because I'm not doing anything with their suggestion. And so sometimes you'll have that kind of an insecurity or fear with some well-meaning leaders, but that's why they don't ask. You've got others who honestly don't think that their people are capable of having the strategic thoughts, the valuable input. And that's where there's typically a disconnect between the skill building that needs to take place and what people are actually capable of. And so we we give leaders in courageous cultures the roadmap to be able to build that culture by asking those kinds of questions. And so, for instance, a, a specific example of how to do that is what we call a courageous question, a question that is both specific and vulnerable. It's not just a, hey, how can we get better? How can we improve? If you've got ideas, I'd love to hear them. I have an open door, right? That's all passive. A courageous question is active, it's intentional. So you say something like, what's one thing that's going to sabotage this initiative if we don't address it? It's specific, it's just asking for one thing, and it's vulnerable because it admits that progress, that improvement is possible. I really like that, David. I also think so many times employees aren't asked because managers may also think, well, we're full up. I mean, we don't have room to execute on more ideas, and they're not recognizing that the ideas, as Karen was saying, may not just be employee experience or customer experience, but could be related to productivity. So the very answer could actually solve the problem of why they're not asking. And I love this courageous question, specific and vulnerable and active and intentional. And I can see that it is easy to hear you say that and probably a little more difficult to put it into practice to know how to frame that question or when to pose that question. Are you seeing that as an issue of, you know, don't just throw it out there in an email or something, but it has to be done artfully or am I reading that wrong? So, yeah. So there is definitely a process too. And it's interesting because we don't just teach this stuff. We're running a company. And so we, we're, we're laughing because, you know, sometimes the same, fr- we feel the same frustrations. You know, people bring us these fantastic ideas, but they're not where we're headed strategically. Like, oh dear, gosh, now how do we, we got to respond with regard on this because, you know, got to do what we're teaching here. So one of the things that we really have found, both in our own work running an organization and with the work that we do with clients, is it's so important to establish clarity. And this is not just clarity about, yes, we really want your ideas, but it's clarity about where you really need ideas. So, you know, if you go in, one of the things we've been doing a lot of during this pandemic is people are thinking about how are they pivoting? executives will identify three strategic issues where they really do need great ideas. And then we take them through this process where uh, we first do an own the ugly, where they are asking courageous questions to think about the situation. And then from there, helping in breakout rooms to think each group thinks about a strategic idea that they might have that would contribute to that strategic initiative and then builds their case uh, to, you know, why would this idea be great? And when we got really specific, it's amazing to see how the ideas get unleashed. Oh, you really do want ideas about this. And it was interesting because as we were working with uh, one, what we were calling a fishbowl, we had 160 people we were putting through this process fishbowl instead of Shark Tank, right? But it was a little bit of a competition, but it was friendly. As we were working with the CEO to say, which strategic ideas do you want? 
And at one point she had, she's like, well, maybe we should be thinking about, they just acquired an organization. Maybe we should be thinking about our brand. And I've known this woman for a long time. She's been a client for a while. I said, do you really want input on that? And she's like, no, <laughs> you know what you want to do. You're like, this. she's a great visionary. You've already got this. Where do you really need a great idea? And so I think that's where you need to think about, you know, getting specific with folks. And that feels very empowering and reduces the friction. I really like that clarity. I, I have to admit that I have asked questions sometimes without that clarity. And then you get this variety of answers and you don't know what to do with them. And the more specific you are, the more helpful they are because mm -hmm. you, you help direct them. But you also say in this research that you found that over half the people withheld ideas because they were concerned they wouldn't get credit. And so I wonder about that. Even if you have the clarity, you know, you know, this is what I want help with. Give me some specifics on this. Do you get those answers or are people holding it back? And, and why is credit so important? Why does it matter? How do we how do we get people to look at the bigger picture or to get the credit that they need in order to not make that be a stumbling block? Well, everything that you're talking about there, Skip, goes into what do we do? How do we respond to the ideas we receive? So I want to share an example of a large financial institution that we were working with. And they had done a good job on the asking side of things. They had a very robust system for acquiring ideas from employees at every level of the company. And they were getting a lot of, of ideas every month, hundreds of quality ideas. Talking to the executive responsible one day, he told us, you know, what's interesting is half of the ideas that we're receiving are things that are already being done. And we said, wow, so the ideas are so good, they're already being used, they're already being implemented. And he said, yeah, exactly. And we said, well, wow, your, your employee satisfaction scores must be through the roof. And he said, uh, no, our pulse surveys are not showing that the way you might expect. And we said, huh. And so as we asked questions, one of the, the ones that revealed was, we said, so how are you going back and telling those people, hey, listen, that idea that you submitted, it was so good. We're actually already doing it. And here's where you can learn more. I love that because I call it closed loop communication. So often people are rushing to get to the next thing. They don't think about closing that loop. And I can imagine that is really not great for morale. Well, if you think about the research, go back to the research, what's happening to those people? So they took the time, they had the creativity, the thinking, they took the, the energy to put their idea in. And then from their perspective, it's a black hole. And so it's just reinforced the research findings. They don't really care. Two thirds of respondents said my management's stuck in their way of thinking. They're just going to do what they always do. Uh, if I were to submit an idea, nothing's going to happen that fear of not getting credit, you know, all those kinds of elements. And so we've just reinforced all those things, even though none of them are true. The idea was actually valued and was so good, it's being done. That's so good because it goes from a black hole, David, and then the next thing you know, they might see it implemented and think, wait a minute. Well, right. And I didn't get the credit. Yeah. yeah. And so that goes to your question about the credit. And so as you're responding, how are you extending credit? And also sometimes we have middle managers stealing credit. Mm -hmm. And so it was interesting, uh, um, early on, about six years ago, I was teaching in an MBA program and the class was dealing with difficult people. And the semester project is you had to come and bring a difficult person that we were going to work on and give you strategies and techniques to actually work on this situation. Can you guess who each person picked? Every 60 people in the class, 59 picked their boss. And the number one issue, which is consistent with this research, is my boss takes credit for my ideas. 
And so that's where I think you also need to make sure you're doing leadership development at all levels of the business, right? To help people have the confidence to be okay to say, this wasn't my idea, it was somebody else's and uh, I, you know support that. As a senior leader, for our senior leaders listening, if you're a senior leader, are you celebrating your direct reports who are in turn celebrating their people and where those ideas come from? You know, you get more of what you encourage and celebrate, less of what you ignore or criticize. So as somebody is lifting up and saying, hey, my team figured out a solution here and I'm bringing that forward and it's got legs. Let's celebrate that person for acknowledging and drawing the best out of their team as opposed to only acknowledging the people who might say, I had a brilliant idea. I love that. And as I always say, leaders, true leaders, always put a spotlight on others. Yes. So if you're putting the spotlight on yourself saying, look at this great idea, you're really not leading. You're just a terrific, innovative individual contributor. So really great example. So there's these different concepts in your book. Uh, we can't go through all of them. I want people to get it so they can see the methodology, the research, the steps that you should take. I just want to touch on one. And you mentioned earlier this respond with regard, which I love to respond in the appropriate way. But there's this other concept of galvanize the genius. And I'd love for you to talk about five by five as a tool and how it works. Yeah. So five by five is really one of our favorite techniques. And it, this is, if something is important, if something is strategically important, you want people to get it, you need to communicate it five times, five different ways, because once isn't enough. And a lot of times when we'll work with managers and they'll say, my team, I just don't understand. I told them. And we said, well, when did you tell them? I told them in our staff meeting. People have a lot going on and you've likely been thinking about what your strategy or your, what, what was so important for a long time. They're just getting hit with it on top of everything else that's cluttered. And so reinforcing five times, five different ways. For example, uh, working with an energy company and they had technicians that were going into people's homes and they did not have the customer experience that they wanted. So they came up with five critical behaviors that they wanted everyone to do. And they, they crowdsourced this from the techs so the techs would have buy-in. And so they thought, well, the techs were in the meeting where they identified the five critical behaviors, so they should get it, right? They agreed to it and the techs weren't doing it. So the manager took our five by five and said, okay, I'm going to take each one of these over a five-week period. I'm going to reinforce it. So let's just take muddy boots. One is you take off your boots before you enter the house. Okay. So way one, he put a big picture of their boots with a big X through it and put it in everybody's truck. as they. So they walked into their truck and they laughed because there's an X nobody boots, is it, right? Then later that morning, he sent a text message to the group distribution. Remember, it's really important. This is why it's so important that we keep the customer's home clean. Please, no muddy boots. Then as he, his supervisors were doing ride-alongs with folks, he said, as you're doing that, Make sure as people are entering the house that if they don't take off their boots, that you remind them to take off their boots. So, so you know, five times, five different ways so that by the end of that, the techs were like, I get it, nobody boots, right? But, you know, maybe they were a little, um, you know, overwhelmed, like that's a lot. That's, but guess what? They stopped wearing the muddy boots. And so that's when we talk about, you can't do that with everything, but you can do it with the things that are, if there are critical behaviors or there's a new best practice that you want adopted, that's where you take this innovation and can then spread it out. I resonated with that concept. I think often I resonate with the things that I know either are or were a challenge for me. And as a CEO of a large company, I would often roll out something and think, well, I told them. 
And the importance of saying it over and over in different forums, in different ways, adding a story, putting it out a video, writing something about it, adding color to it, keeping it as a theme. And I thought, wonder why it is that I don't, why am I not naturally inclined to do that? And one reason maybe just on board, I told that story, move on. But another one is you don't want to be insulting. And you know, and I think about the boots, I think, well, I told them about the boots. I don't want to be parental. I don't want to say, you know, put on these boots or take off these boots, et cetera, the muddy house. And yet the variety of ways you can do it, the why, the way you just explain that story, Karen, I think is so really important to, you know, get those strategic things. But it is interesting, I think, when you probe on the leader's why of, of what it is behind the reason they're not necessarily putting these things in, into practice, because they might have good intentions, but there's a way to improve it. Have you noticed that as you're consulting and coaching? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we can suffer the same thing as leaders ourselves and if we fall prey to it. And as you said, it's boring. The repetition of that messaging, for us, it lacks the shininess and the excitement of the new idea and the new strategy that's going to change everything. Well, the new idea is only half of it, right? It's the execution implementation of that that's going to make a difference. And so the way that I like to think about this, there's two twofold. One is at the point where I am sick of hearing myself talk about it, other people are probably just starting to get, oh, this is important. And there's that kind of a trade-off happening. So it's a good benchmark. Am I sick of saying this? Other people might just be getting it. And then another way to think about it is I like to think of a band metaphor. And if you think of a rock band, that drummer doesn't just play the beat for a measure or two and then set down the sticks and I'll see you at the end of the song on to the next beat, right? They have to maintain that beat the entire song in order for it to work. And so leadership messaging and this five by five communication to galvanize the genius is very much in line with that. It's interesting. We, we did a leadership program and it, this was not normally how we would do this, but it was a smaller company. So he wanted to have every leader in his team. So the CEO is in the workshops, the senior vice presidents, the vice presidents, the directors, the managers, the supervisors. And we were teaching five by five. The CEO like loved it. The senior team loved it. The supervisors went out and we had to go back and clarify because the supervisors were going out and trying to communicate, you know, everything five times, five different ways, which was exhausting and unnecessary, right? So, you know, the staff meetings changed from nine to nine 30 and they would communicate that five times. You don't need that, right? We're talking about strategic, really strategic things. Yeah. I do like that as an, as an added clarification. Otherwise it does exhaust everybody. And then you, your main messages get lost because everything's right. flooding at you even more. Right. And David, I love the music example in particular. That's going to resonate with me for a long time as somebody deeply into music. A couple other quick questions. I'm curious. So let's say you're thinking about joining an organization. How do you assess that organizational culture and whether it's right for you in the first place? That's a really good, important question. It's funny because we've written on the other way. How can you assess whether an employee is is going to be a good fit for your courageous culture? But I, I think that it's in your interviews, you can be asking questions like, how do people share ideas? Uh, what is the process uh, for lifting up if you've got some innovative ideas? You can use reverse behavioral interviewing techniques. So if you are a candidate, you're accustomed to hearing questions like, tell me about a time when you disagreed with your boss. You know, what did you do? What happened? When it's your turn to ask questions, you can ask similar questions. Hey, you know, I've been wondering about how people share ideas. So can you tell me the last time that you 
had an idea about how something might improve. You might improve a process and efficiency, a customer outcome. And how did you lift that up? What happened with it? How did that look? Yeah. And if they get really defensive or their body language freaks out, that may be an indication that that's not a part of their culture. Or they, yeah. Or even if they just can't think of anything. And if they are a courageous culture, I can imagine that if I'm interviewing someone and they're asking me those kinds of questions, I'm like, oh, yes, this is the kind of thinker I want. So. Let me tell you about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I want to flip another thing, a few others around. You're told, uh, you know, oftentimes you're coaching leaders on, you know, not saying, this is the way we do it, et cetera, which is not responding with regard. What if you are the employee and you're told, you know, this is not the way we do it. What, what advice do you have to that employee who's told that? What do they yeah. do from there? Yeah. So one of the things that we have found, one of the tools in the book that seems to be resonating the most is helping your people bring better ideas. So if you are an individual contributor and you have a really great idea how do you position this idea that it's most likely to be heard? So you go to your, your boss, so this is all the way we've always done it. You say, yeah, thing is, I really care about the success of this team. Let me share with you why I think this might work. And so then you use our idea model. Why is this idea interesting? Meaning, why is it strategically aligned with where your manager has said they, they're headed? You know, this is will help improve. I know you're frustrated with the customer experience. This is why this idea will be really important to improve the CX right now. Is it doable? Because that's another thing. A lot of times when people are like, ah, no, it's that to, to your point earlier, they just don't want any more ideas. I don't think it's going to be that big of an ideal. Here's why I think we could pull it off, even in the middle of a pandemic, even in the middle of this uh, pivot that we're in. E, is it engaging? Here's who else I think we might need to involve in this, who I've already done some stakeholdering and, you know, IT has told me they can pull it off and HR thinks it's a great idea. So here's some ways I think that, you know, who we might need to involve. And then A, here are a couple of key actions, specific next steps that I would recommend that we do. And so you're bringing more fully baked ideas and so if you're listening and saying, okay, you know, that first step, that I step of interesting, you know, I was just told this isn't how we do it. This is what we do. And if you don't know the why behind that, there's a process for you to engage in to find out and ask and to do that in a, a friendly way. Hey, listen, as Karen said, I'm really committed to our success. I really want this to succeed. It would help me to understand what we're trying to achieve here. What's the outcome we're looking for? Why do we do it this way? And to not ask that in a challenging way, like, well, tell me why. It's not that kind of an attitude, but it's a, hey, listen, I want to make sure that I am knocking this out of the park. If you can help me understand the reason behind the methodology, I'll make sure that we get that done. And the more that you understand the outcomes that your boss, your boss's boss is looking to achieve, the better you're able to frame your ideas and make them interesting. Tone of voice is everything. <laughs> you know, so I think that a lot of times when people are frustrated, have brought up an idea, you know, they it's that they haven't done it quite as eloquently as they could have, you know. So either they were overly enthusiastic and so excited it's overwhelming to the manager, or they're aggressive, like, this is just stupid. We should be stop doing it this way. We should do it this way instead, right? No manager wants to hear that. I think it's about how you're positioning it and always looking like you've got the needs of the business at the foundation of your recommendation. So good. It does matter your tone of voice and your care and empathy, not just for the employee, but also for your boss. I think that your message will be heard going up the organization if you practice those things as well. I always tell people, 
it's easy to say what the leader should do. If you start doing those things now, you'll end up being a great leader. But just telling them what they should do is probably not your best recipe for success. <laughs> uh, our favorite saying uh, that we use is, be the leader you want your boss to be. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. And and I, I'm curious, you know, some people will be hearing this and say, courageous cultures. Oh, Karen and David, you know, I work in a big company. Maybe I'm in Verizon. Maybe I'm in a big, massive company. I'm at Exxon. I'm in a huge company, Microsoft. You know, that's stuff for the senior, senior team of creating this courageous culture. But I'm just running a, a team of, you know, 20 people. I don't have any control over the culture. I'm a big proponent that you can create a culture within a culture. And so I'm curious about that. What advice would you give to a manager? Just name to a team and they want to create a courageous culture, but they're just a small team in the middle of this big sea of a company. How do yep. they best do that? Oh, Skip, we love this question. It's it's how change happens, right? And so two things. One, let's just talk about what culture is for just a second. So our favorite definition of culture comes from Seth Godin. And he says, culture is simply people like us do things like this. And so it's how people like us behave. How, how do we act? And so you can absolutely have a culture, a team culture or a department culture within a larger organization. Absolutely. And so how do you do that as a leader? So setting your intention, to absolutely. Uh, and then role modeling. One of the steps in the book we talk about is navigate the narrative. And if you specifically want to create a courageous culture, the reason that we talk about courage is because there's a weird paradox in a courageous culture. And that is that if everyone on the team is raising their hand on behalf of the employee experience, the customer experience, solving problems, offering their micro innovations, if everyone's doing that, it takes less individual courage for anybody to raise their hand. It's just what people like us do. So if you are starting that process, it's going to take courage for you as a leader to ask those courageous questions, to get clear about where you need a great idea, to hear the ideas that come, to learn how to respond with regard, and to start doing those things. You don't need to go in and declare, hey guys, we're creating a courageous culture. Start acting it out. And then invite people on that journey with you. And watch your own behaviors. So, and what messaging are you giving to your team? Are you willing to advocate for ideas with your boss? Are you bringing them up strategically? How are you interacting with your peers? Are you collaborating and challenging and finding new innovative ways to do things? 360 around your sphere of influence. And also, one, this is something I have seen happen in more toxic cultures where somebody's trying to create what we call a cultural oasis is they will diss their boss and they'll say, okay, so I really want your ideas and stuff, but you know, don't speak up in that meeting when he's here, just play it safe. We'll just sort of under the covers do these things. You have just undone all the good you're doing when you send that kind of messaging. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that when you create enemies within your own company, you are always going to lose both you, your team and the company. That is never a good recipe for success. Well, I would love to just touch on two quick things. One is the competitive advantage of having a courageous culture. There is one, right? And, and what are you seeing as you work with companies that are aspiring or becoming courageous? You know, when we set out to write this book, we started the research and the, the writing process about three years ago, and we didn't know there was going to be a pandemic or any of that. What we did know was the gap that we started the conversation with between senior leaders, front lines. The other thing that we saw was the shifting nature of work and the workplace. And that is that anything that can be routinized that a computer can do, they're going to do. They're already doing a lot of it, and it's only going to get more and more abundant as technology improves and it becomes easier. And those become table stakes. That's just the price of entry. 
So if you're going to be in any particular industry, your price of entry is all the automation and the things computers can do. The competitive advantage are the things that only people can do. And the leaders that are going to lead organizations that are winning in the marketplace are those that leverage the creativity, the empathy, the courage, the problem solving, the micro innovations, the customer advocacy of their people. And that's what the leadership roadmap of Courageous Cultures is all about, is leading organizations that will create that competitive advantage. Oh, that's so well said. That is a very articulate answer to that competitive advantage question. Last thing I want to ask is I'm a fan of all of your work. You were writing your blogs, videos, the many things that you put out for free and helping the world. How does your first book, which I'm a fan of, Winning Well, relate and tie in if people are listening and don't know these two books? How does it tie in with this idea of courageous cultures? Give us a little roadmap of Winning Well and then this book, Courageous Cultures. Yeah, say thank you, Skip. So that was very nice of you to say all those nice things. And uh, we are huge fans of yours, too. Uh, so it's called Winning Well, A Manager's Guide to Getting Results Without Losing Your Soul. And so it is designed to give you very practical tools and techniques of how you get the results that you need and stay a decent human being along the way. So how do you have a tough conversation in a way that focuses on both the results and the behavior change that you need and maintains the relationships or even makes the relationship better as a result? How do you run effective meetings in a way that does that? So winning well gives you the foundation to manage well. And if you get your a solid foundation of management, that's really when you're ready to then take the a more strategic step of building a courageous culture, tapping into the best ideas of every employee. But if you don't have clear expectations, if you're not organizing your work around the most important things, these more strategic conversations, your team's just not ready for them. They're like, I just like to have a one-on-one, you know? <laughs> If you don't have your leadership and management fundamentals down and working at a, you know, a good sufficient level of quality, it's going to be very tough to create a safe, proactive, intentional, courageous it, culture. It's very easy when I'm doing a um, you know, sales conversation with someone who's interested in one of our programs to know within five minutes, I can know, do they need winning well curriculum or are they ready for courageous cultures curriculum? That's good. Well, you can see how these works tie together. And I think everyone here knows that creating a courageous culture is the key to a competitive advantage and to winning well after listening to your conversation. And both of these ideas work incredibly well together to achieve breakthrough results. And so I encourage everyone to get both of those books. And we want to thank Karen Hurt and David Dye for being with us. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate it, Skip. And we look forward to you creating a courageous culture so that you and your entire organization can aim higher. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Aim Higher with Skip Pritchard. Check out skippritchard.com for more episodes, interviews, book reviews, and leadership insights. And if you like what you hear, please rate us in iTunes. Until next time, remember... Don't settle for the mediocre, always aim higher.